Hello, Phil Common, Bienvenue, Kanichiwa, Nihao, Jambo. It's time for the Army's Inquisition yet again. Episode 157 on Sunday, the 1st of November. Je suis Armish Phil. I'm Armish Ben. <laughs> I'm Wish Matt. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Tonight's guest is author and researcher David Warner Matheson. Uh, Dave's written close to a dozen books exploring the links between ancient mythology, theology, and the stars. Uh, his work provides evidence for a worldwide system of celestial metaphor rooted deep in prehistory, which has provided the foundation for many of the myths, religious texts, and oral traditions we see around the globe today. Uh, you can go to starmythworld.com to find out more. Welcome to the show, David. Thank you very much, Phil. Amish Phil, very good to be here. Uh, Thanks for getting really my name good, right. Good to meet Good to meet all three of you. Thanks for having me over. Good. Yeah, I've, I've been looking forward to this for weeks. I um, yeah. I read Astral Theology for Life, which you can see here. <laughs> nice props. I, I love the. Uh, I moved a window out of the way during the intro, and I said, "Oh, look, I, I know that book." What's this here? You What's this a, down there? Oh. You got another one? Yeah, you were reading it upside down. It looks like. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm that talented. Yeah, Myth and Trauma as well. Uh, yeah, so it's great to have you here. Um, I watched your video recently, the one you did with Comatan on your website. Oh uh, yeah. That was uh, interesting. Thank you, for the, thank you for the intro. Thanks for, thanks for uh, I guess he's in your neck of the woods or your neck of the island. He lives in our town. Okay. And uh, was it you, Amish Matt? Did you find him? I think so, yeah. I stumbled across him. There's an article on a blog, a local blog about him. Yeah, doing his first sort of... Um, lecture i think that's right mm. it was meant to do his first sort of public speaking engagement and i think it was due in march wasn't it mm. um, yeah. or april yeah. and, and yeah. we had him on just before the lockdown in march and obviously it all got cancelled and uh, it, that's all been delayed but yeah, i thought it was interesting what you were talking about yeah that was a that was a fun conversation we're gonna do another one i think sometime in november here we are on the first of november so, uh, yeah, yeah, we, uh, we put it off because of the, uh, we were going to have our Grimerica, uh, trip to the contact at the cabin in, in, uh, Utah. But of course the Canadian border is still locked down. And I saw, I saw the, uh, saw the meme you just put up on, on your Instagram with the, the, the uh, sign language guy saying that you guys are going to be locked down for, for a while. It sounds like. Yeah, we had to. Actually, you know, you know, Ben and Matt don't talk very much, so they should be doing sign language in the background and, uh, during the show. I, I, I know thinking. too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, most uh, of your sign, sign language is used uh, during motoring, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> remote strangers on the on the interstate yeah on the freeway <laughs> yeah. yeah i know about three so I, yeah i call that a working knowledge maybe <laughs> yeah i am interested in learning more about the backgrounds of amish matt amish ben and amish phil i mean you guys are obviously 
you know, Amish is a is a North American phenomenon mostly, and I think you're unfamiliar with the fact that they're not allowed to wear mustaches, <laughs> mustachios. Ben and Phil, you got to clean that up. Um, you, you know why? Why is it? Why? Why? Why don't can't they wear because, mustaches? Because uh, mustaches are associated with the military. With no, they're pacifistic, and uh, for a long time. You know, especially in Germanic countries, they would talk about, you know, the big mustachioed, uh, even when the Romans were fighting the Germanic uh, people, they talk about their facial hair and things like that. But having a mustache was uh, kind of a sign of the military wow. order, and they were rejecting that. So they, they shave everything. I mean, they shave the mustache, but leave the beard. But you mm. can't have a beard until you're married. So I see that Matt right. is... Matt is potentially the unmarried uh, one in the group, and Phil and Ben are obviously married. I hate have to several kids going by now, right? I hate to break this to you, David, but uh, we're, we're, <laughs> not, not we're not actually Amish. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we can get into that. <laughs> You're going to get me in trouble with the Amish then. It's all right, I think watching. they'll never hear it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Ben, I think, Ben, at this point, you need to explain yourself, don't you? As in? As in why why the podcast is called the Amish Inquisition and we're all called Amish people. Well, I I don't know. I, it kind of, <laughs> it developed in, in a sort of period of unconsciousness, I think, between <laughs> us. Um, but I guess the, uh, it's the thinking behind it is that no one expected us to do a podcast, hence the Inquisition side of it. Uh, the Spanish Inquisition was taken. Uh, and I guess the uh, uh, we, we kind of pitched ourselves to the Amish knowing that um, we'd get zero listeners anyway at the, <laughs> at the outset. <laughs> uh, so to really maximise that um, that market. So I, I feel like we have cornered the Amish market. I apologize in advance to any Amish who may be listening. Um, <laughs> it might be Rumspringer for, for some people. They might, yeah, for anything might choose might this their hallowed night to um, listen to the Amish Inquisition. Yeah. <laughs> and really, if they do, they'll be shocked at what we're going to talk about. But how long ago did the podcast come together? Uh, I think it was August 17, wasn't it, the first one? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. About yeah, three years, just, isn't it? Just over three years. Yeah. And and start- you go, sorry, sorry. It started off as just sort of a social thing, really. Um, mm-hmm. Well, I suppose, what, three years ago, so we'll all have been about 34, 35. We've all got young kids and families. And once you get to, into that period of your life, your social life with your mates sort of takes a big nosedive. And um, we've often taught that as men... Uh, as opposed to women, women tend to ring each other up. They'll ring their girlfriends up or go around for a coffee and shoot the shit. Whereas men tend to have to <laughs> need an excuse to meet. So whether it be going to the pub or football yeah. match or the rugby, or there always has to be sort of an underlying reason to get men to get together and talk to each other. So that was sort of why it started, and it's sort of developed from there, really. Yeah, I saw I saw some I think it was a female podcaster who said something like 
you know, most podcasts are just an excuse for men to have meaningful conversations or something <laughs> like that. It yeah, is. it's bang on. It's true. Yeah. yeah. You, can, you, you can have a meaningful conversation without uh, without without an excuse if you do it on a podcast. But uh, were you all buddies when you were five years old? Or? Um, well, well, a little later than that. Yeah. High school, I think we, we were all in the same high school. I think you two were... Um, you two were in primary school together, like elementary yeah. school um, mm-hmm. equivalent. Yeah, that's cool. Well, thanks for inviting me in to uh, to the podcast for a for a conversation. And uh, you know, I don't always get to hear all of your. I've listened to a few, you know, uh, podcasts of yours, and a lot of times you just let the guest talk. So I just wanted to kind of hear a little bit more about yourselves. Yeah, well, that's the way we do it. Is we have a sort of an hour or an hour, you know, well, it was about an hour and a half last week with the guests trying to learn something and, you know, about various different subjects, esoteric subjects, archaeologists, scientists, authors, just to try and learn something really and share that with the audience. And then sort of the second half, we, or the second end segment, we go over some current events and sort of talk amongst ourselves and be a bit silly. So uh, that's the sort of the balance. But yeah, that's why that's why you're here, Dave. We want to learn about star myths. Yeah, so I got forty (laughs) minutes left (laughs) before the before the uh, fun fun part starts. (laughs) Yeah, how'd you hear about my uh, star myths? I see. I mean, thanks for buying the books and putting them on the table. (laughs) Yeah, I heard you on how much you were able to get through. I don't know, but how'd you hear about it? (laughs) It was Gramerica. Uh-huh. We had we had Darren and Graham on a few weeks ago, didn't we? Um, but mm-hmm. I've, I've been listening to Grime America for for years, so I'm sure I'm pretty sure that's where I heard you first talking. Um, and then uh, when was, were you on there quite recently? So we I last... haven't been on Grime America for a little bit. Um, maybe a, uh, maybe it's been within a year, but uh, yeah. I've been on several times. Of course, Darren and Graham are great, great. Uh, interviewers and we've set up a couple of events that i'm scheduled to go to if we ever are allowed to leave our homes <laughs> uh, i mean it's more it's actually more a problem with the guys from canada being able to come down to the u.s and get back home in a timely manner is the main problem and since they are kind of the stars of the show um, yeah. we're we're working on getting the border opened or i think darren's been digging a tunnel in, in his spare time. <laughs> so either we'll, we'll get one of those two things uh, fixed and ready to go. But uh, yeah, I've been on, I've been on a lot of podcasts and I put them in my website as an archive. Um, so people can go check those out. But uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I think esoteric, this is the, this is the heart of it right here. <laughs> the, the connection between the myths and the stars and, using what what is esoteric anyway is using something else to help us kind of bridge that gap to grasp something that we wouldn't maybe be able to grasp otherwise it's it's uh it's not trying to hide something is what uh this writer schwaller de lubich argued it's not it's thought of as kind of trying to hide things but it's really you couldn't grasp it without the esoteric it can't he says it can't be betrayed because everyone has to grasp it for themselves. It's kind of like a thing where you go, Oh, it's like a, a Eureka moment that, that occurs. Mm. If it's done correctly, you're told a certain story or you're shown a certain thing 
and then you're you learn all about that thing and you get into it and then someone says now do you want to know what that's really about and they tell you and you go whoa yeah. it's i i use i used to use moby dick as an example herman melville does that with whales and whaling and every single chapter he's, he goes deep 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 into and people are like this is so boring why is he talking about the this aspect of the rope or this aspect of the whale fat and blubber or whatever and then at the very end of each chapter he says now what this really means is we're all in a whale boat and at any moment the rope could catch around our leg and pull us to the deep or something. And you go, Whoa, that's what it means. And, and, and he's making a philosophical leap. That's, uh, that's what I think is going on in these star myths. And, and that's, you know, you're talking about these esoteric subjects. I think that's what's going on. And they're, they're like helping us to leap into a new understanding. You use um, in astrotheology for life, you use a fantastic metaphor that you describe about the furniture with the sheet over it, which I thought was brilliant. Oh, thanks. Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> I am drawn to metaphors. I've always been, you know, you can't really make money making metaphors, but, uh, <laughs> but they're really, really useful for helping someone to, if you are, you know, you know something about a subject and someone else is kind of on the other side of the river on that subject you've got to give them some stepping stones. And then at the end, they kind of have to make that leap to the side of the river that you're on. Well, anyway, the, the sheet metaphor, um, it's actually invisible furniture in the metaphor because these myths are talking about invisible truths or things that we can't easily grasp or easily see, but we are bumping into them all the time. It's like we're walking around the house and we're like, Oh, there's that chair. There's that invisible chair. I forgot where I put it. We're bumping into these truths occasionally, but in order to see them, the ancients, whoever came up with this system said, well, I'm going to drape this embroidered sheet over the furniture. And it's the same furniture in all the different cultures, but the sheets have different designs on them. And some sheets are kind of really thin and, and fine and silken. And maybe some of the cultures that are living in the warmer, more temperate climates like India, you know, in India, the gods shower down flowers whenever a mortal does something good or, you know, something really, really, really virtuous flowers shower down from the heavens and, and beautiful music plays in the, in the air. Well, in the Norse myths, the gods are not, you know, Thor and Odin are not showering anyone with flowers. It's a totally different feel. It's stark. It's harsh. It's violent. Not that the myths of ancient India don't have a lot of amazing battles and warrior prowess, but it's a totally different feel. So it's like the, the furniture has been draped with, uh, you know, bear skins or something in the Norse myths and wolf skins, but, uh, it's draping the same invisible truths in different ways. And sometimes they're really full of gods and goddesses. And sometimes they're, they're kind of more simplistic or geometrical designs like the Taoist and the Buddhist uh, stories. They're using the same system. They're using the same ancient foundation of celestial metaphor, but they do it in a totally different way that feels really different. But I would argue they're all illuminating the same uh, substrate, the same truths underneath. Yeah. I love So that. yeah, thanks for picking up on that. I haven't actually mentioned that metaphor on the, uh, on a podcast that I can recall. I made a, a movie where I talked about it once. Right. 
No, I thought, I thought it summed it up really well. I also like the way you brought down sort of you, you explained the celestial mechanics as well and the, the 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 different motions of that we see whether it's the rotation or the orbits or precession of the equinoxes because it's something that's really hard to sort of get around your head and sort of visualize, isn't it? Especially when you're trying to make astronomical observations. Yeah. Well, thanks. It's, it is, you know, I, I mentioned Moby Dick and I really think Herman Melville was casting around for what is the, I want to deal with some really deep topics. I mean, Moby Dick deals with kind of predestination and fate and, you know, uh, obsessions and (laughs) tyranny and freedom and uh, oppression and all these big, big, big topics. A lot of them, religious topics like Calvinism, predestination kind of things work their way in there. And I think he was casting around for what is the biggest, most awesome, most awe-inspiring canvas I can use. And he used the oceans, not just the Atlantic, not just the Pacific, but all, I mean, it goes around all the seven seas and the, the whales. If you ever see, you know, these videos of whales kind of just blowing bubbles and turning over and jumping, they're awe-inspiring. It's like, I live on the same planet with those. Well, then looking up to the heavens, it's, that's the, I would say the biggest canvas. That's the heavenly ocean. That's the silent ocean overhead that's turning and, and things in there are moving around like the planet Jupiter, which, as we now know, has ducks on it. Uh, that was a pretty <laughs> amazing meme that you guys found. Um, but, you know, these awe-inspiring celestial cycles, the most awe-inspiring of them all perhaps being procession, which grinds out over these thousands and thousands of years, but the turning of these constellations. And it's actually an infinite realm, right? When we're looking out into the deep dark night of space we're looking into infinity at least that's presumably it's infinite and so what better um, canvas to use to try and help us to see the infinite realm but we can't see we can't see the invisible realm but they use this and but you're right the the celestial mechanics are almost impossible to get your head around and in fact since writing astrotheology for life I've encountered the work of <laughs> Simon Shack, and I made a video about this. It's controversial. I don't agree with every single thing Simon Shack um, argues, but he's obviously a very keen thinker because he's part Norwegian, as am I. So that's, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm descended from So I'm sure he has an extremely powerful intellect um, because of that. But he has <laughs> argued that. You know, Kepler came in and and took the work of Tuga Brach or Tycho Brahe, as we usually say, or Tycho Brahe, um, who was a Danish um, genius who had worked out all these things. And his student was Kepler and Tuga died of a mysterious causes or suspicious causes. And then Kepler suddenly changed his theories to... Uh, the Keplerian model that basically we're still using today where the sun is at the center of everything. And Simon Schack following Tuga, uh, he calls his system, the Tycho's system because he completed Tycho's work. So he put an S on the end for Simon Schack, which is a binary system, not us, not just going straight around the sun, but we've got (laughs) somehow a binary operation going on between the sun and Mars 
which is why Mars has such a difficult orbit to figure out. Tugo said, you know, anyway, I don't want to get too lost in the celestial mechanics, but Mars is very, very, very difficult to figure out. And I would argue that there are some aspects of Mars's orbit and a few other pieces of evidence that seem to cause radical, I mean, grave, you know, insurmountable problems for the Keplerian model. So maybe we are in some kind of a binary system. Yeah, this is something I've been thinking about recently in the fact that we have the leap year and that the, the orbit is 365 and a quarter days. It doesn't make sense to me. It should be balanced in some way. And I've, I've been thinking about this, you know, like we're missing something. We're missing something in our celestial, celestial mechanics that will rectify that. And one of the interesting things I did hear about, I was reading one of John Anthony West's books. Uh, I don't know if it was earlier this year or last year. And he was talking about the ancient Egypts were um, using the Sothic, is it the Sothic calendar? With yeah. Sirius, Sothic cycle, cycle. Yeah, yeah. that's a, it's a Greek, Greek. The Greek name for Sirius was Sothis, and so there's a Sothic cycle for Sirius. Um, uh, so all that celestial mechanics. <laughs> I, um, I my, <laughs> I used to have a. There, I had a. There was a major I worked for in the army who would say things like. I'm thinking so hard, my hair hurts. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's that's how I feel when I start thinking about celestial mechanics. Yeah. But uh, so if you had to, if I had to explain to you the Sothic cycle right now, I would completely <laughs> mess it up. But the Maya had it completely dialed in, and their monuments today incorporate the cycles of the rising and setting cycles of Venus and Moon along the horizons and. Uh, Sirius was obviously really critical to the ancient Egyptians. Sorry, I, I don't know if I jumped in and interrupted what no, you were going to say about John Anthony West. No, I was just, I was just intrigued that it, that it was such an important component for the ancient Egyptians, and like you said, for the Maya. Uh, but we sort of disregard it, and whether that's just because it's an esoteric thing, because it's the morning star and it's so prominent, or whether because I did read once that the Dogon tribe seemed to have um, a big well fascination or obsession with Sirius as well right so and that's uh Laird Scranton if you could ever have him on your show could explain all about the Dogen um, Sirius but they appear to have known about the binary nature of Sirius or perhaps it's even a more than a binary star it may be three or even six uh stars orbiting but basically we've found that uh, as as astronomy and science have gotten bigger and bigger telescopes or you know radio you know, using other ways of seeing farther and farther they've discovered that well it looks like more than 80 percent of the stars we're finding are at least binary or they're multiple so what's you know it's interesting that you said we seem to have forgotten all these cycles but back in the ancient times they were so central and so important and it is possible that putting you know saying, if we're really in a binary or something more complicated and saying to everybody, no, we're in a central, only a, there's only one sun and it's right in the middle of everything. And it's a, you know, this uh, Keplerian Copernican model where the sun is at the center of everything is a lot like getting rid of all the ancient gods and putting 
one monotheistic God in the center of everything, <laughs> which by the way, you know, the Christianity system is a solar system. It's a solar cult. It worships on Sunday. It um, has a lot of solar aspects to it. It's, it's almost, it's almost possible that those two um, changes <laughs> happen at the same time for some kind of a reason. So uh, I would check out Simon Shack's book on the Tycos and he's got a website about it. And if you're into computer models, he has a associate, a, a colleague named Patrick Holmqvist, Patrick Holmqvist, I'm probably saying it wrong in Sweden, who has made a beautiful 3d model of it, um, that you can, uh, of their model. So what I would say about what I've discovered about the connection between the stars and the myths is what the, what the actual model of the solar system is doesn't really change what we see, what we have to explain what we see here from the earth with our model, whatever, whatever our model is, has to be able to explain the seasons that we have and the, you know, the changes in the light and the motions of the planets and the motions of the stars that we can see from earth. And so you can explain those with different hypotheses and those can harden into kind of a theory and kind of into something that people accept without even questioning. And so it may be that we've accepted a model that is in need of some change, perhaps in need of radical change, but either way, the model itself doesn't, doesn't change what I'm going to talk about in terms of the connection between the myths and the stars. But it is possible that somebody changed the model on purpose for some reason to get us to not understand that the moon cycle is super important. In fact, it may be that the moon cycle is at the center of the whole, is like the central gear in the whole system. And they're all actually correlated in even ratios to the moon, not to the earth's rotation around the sun, which is pretty, wow. which would be pretty amazing. Anyway, so that's a whole nother tangent. I didn't, I'm not the expert in that area, so I don't want to, now I've used up all 40 minutes, 40 minutes <laughs> of, right. our, of our hour. But I, uh, I did notice on, um, in astrotheology as well, when you were talking about precession, um, you were sort of hinting at maybe an alternative explanation for, for why that happens, why the precession of the right. equinoxes is That's occurs. right. So, so um, Walter Cruttenden is also a researcher. He's here in California, and I know Walter well. He's a friend, and he also posits a binary system, a different set of uh, a different model than what uh, Simon Schack proposes, but he has found a lot of evidence that we're in a binary system as well. So that's, I think it's something to really, and, and that could explain. So precession causes the background of stars to be delayed, quote unquote delayed. That's the easiest way to understand it. We could talk about what it means, but it, in the myths, it has esoteric significance. It's used to convey important, profound truths that we need, you know, not even they're deep and profound, but also very practical day-to-day minute-to-minute truths that we need in our life. What causes precession it can be argued about. It could be caused by the wobble of the earth. That's the conventional. It could be caused if our sun itself is part of a binary that would also cause the phenomenon of procession that we see. So you, you could explain it in different ways. What's causing it 
I'm agnostic at this point as to what's causing it. I'm, I'm open to whichever model best explains the evidence. I'm convinced that the ancients knew about procession. They incorporated it in the myths long before conventional history says that humanity knew about procession. Procession is not easy to detect. It's a, it's a subtle and it takes some pretty advanced. We could talk about what it takes to figure out that it's even going on, but if they incorporated it in their myths, even in the most ancient myths, it's in the Osiris myth. It's in the, the, the elder Edda, the, the elder Edda or the, the poetic Edda of the Norse myths um, talks about the number of heroes, the number of um, the fallen heroes that are in Odin's hall that are going to go forth to battle at Ragnarok at the end to fight the wolf. The number is a processional number. It's very clearly specifically put into that poem. It's a processional number showing it's part of this system. It's around the world. Processional references are in myth around the world. It's amazing. What causes it, I don't know. I suspect it might be something to do with binary, but whatever causes it, they're using it in the myths to to teach us something. That's what's so interesting is that it's it's all over the world and wherever you look that you find these certain processional numbers reoccurring and how it ties in with things like sacred geometry and ratio and whatnot. But, I mean, to give people a clue, as far as, you know, you said about how difficult it is to actually observe procession, I believe that the background of the stars, it moves something like seven, one degree every 72 years. So right. you, would, you would have to stand in the same place, looking in the same direction for 72 years for it to move a degree. You know, and it's on the same exact day. So you have to know. So it's basically, um, let's say that on the, so you can use the equinoxes and the solstices to figure out where you are in the yearly cycle. Because as you already mentioned, the calendar slips around a little bit. And so we have to add things like leap years. There's been other mechanisms that they've put into leap years. Isn't the only way to keep the calendar on track. You can also use intercalary days where you, every certain number of years you add, like the Egyptians would add five days every certain number of years. And each one of those days was associated with a God or a goddess. But, um, to keep the calendar on track. So you have to first know exactly where you are in the year and you can use it something like an equinox. So if on the equinox, the, the sun rises at the, the very, the very constellation that's in the sky on the Eastern horizon. And you're standing, as you said, in the exact same place. In fact, your head has to like basically be on the exact same, you know, you have to put it on a certain rock a Stonehenge or something. Right. And looking, you know, look exactly towards that direction. And if on that particular day, the constellation Taurus is just above the horizon as the, as the, the Eastern horizon gets first is pitch black and you can really see the stars then it gets lighter dark blue then it gets lighter and lighter and lighter blue and pretty soon you can't see those stars anymore you can only see really bright ones and then they fade out too and then the sun pops up right so if the last if the if the constellation that the sun is in on that specific day is taurus well over time on that exact same day if you're in the exact same spot on the celestial mechanics, you would expect it's always going to be Taurus, right? If you're measuring correctly and you got your head right on the spot and you're on the same spot on the planet, 
and the planet's in the same spot in its travels and the, or the, whoever's orbiting whom here, if the sun is orbiting us or we're orbiting the sun or whatever's happening, if you're in the exact same spot, then the sun should be, have the exact same background. But if over time you start to notice, well, on this exact day, 72 years later, the stars are one degree held up. They're, they're one degree, 72 days, 72 years on the exact day. That's, the, that's like the width of your finger held out at a length, 72 years. So you have to start when you're like three and take really good calculations. And then when you're 75, you can go, huh, one degree. <laughs> I wonder if I messed up or if, <laughs> you see, it's almost requires, it requires precision. It requires records because you got to basically pass this down through generations and people got to go, huh? Okay. I think this is not error. Something's actually going on here. Okay. Now let's try and figure out how fast it's happening. And they figured out how fast it's happening. You said one degree every 72 years right now, it appears to be one degree every 71.6 years, but, um, they round it in the myths to 72. So you have a lot of myths where 72 or some multiple of that 108, 216 will show up in the, in the Norse Ragnarok story that I mentioned is 432,000 um, or 43,200. Sometimes they put different zeros on the end, but they're the same. Those numbers are incorporated into the ratios of the pyramids in, in Egypt, but also in the Americas. Right. So somebody figured it out to high degree of precision. Then they incorporated it into all these myths in a really sophisticated way. And they incorporated it into ancient things like the great pyramid, which who knows how ancient that is, but it's very ancient. So they, it was very sophisticated to figure it out. It's not, it's not a trivial calculation to figure out that processions, even, even explaining what it is, is kind of hard and time consuming, but these, these myths incorporated around the world, around the world. It's amazing. And from all throughout human history, as far back as we go, as we can go, we find these numbers and the evidence of these observations. And, you know, it, this sort of ties into some of like Graham Hancock's work in that it suggests some sort of progenitor culture. I think that's probably the most likely explanation is a very sophisticated culture that um, was way before ancient Egypt, even ancient India, way before ancient Sumer and Babylon and Mesopotamia, because all those cultures that the most ancient scriptures of ancient India, the Vedas have um, this system. So what I've discovered, and I'm not the first to talk about this, but the connection between the myths and the stars goes very, very deep and very, it's very precise. And it's the same system around the world. So it's the same system that's underlying the stories of ancient India from the Vedas to the epics like Mahabharata. Um, It underlies the myths of ancient China and ancient Japan. It underlies all the stories of the Bible, the same system. They're using very precise connotations like this constellation has these certain characters, like certain personalities, you know, you, Matt and Ben have different personalities and uh, the, the constellations have those same kind of different personalities. And those differences are preserved around the world to where we'll find a God in ancient Mesopotamia 
that has the same characteristics as a God in the Norse myths and in the Maya and in the cultures of the Pacific, like Hawaii and, you know, New Zealand, the Maori and um, China and Japan, the same specific characteristics and the same specific associations with a specific constellation. And so this is where it might be helpful if I show some slides or if we have time. Cool. Yeah, definitely. um, Lots of time. Yeah, but but before I do, I've been talking a lot. Ben, Matt, any, or would it be better to just show some specifics no. instead of? Yeah, definitely. I think some visual yeah. aids would work well. I'm just trying to digest. Yeah, um. <laughs> I think me and me and Ben just like listening, don't we? A lot of the time, this is more um, Phil's uh, specialty. We oh, absolutely all <laughs> that yeah. far. Yeah. Well, um, it, it is, it, you know, it's hard to grasp. It's like we haven't really been taught the celestial mechanics to start with, but we also haven't really been taught the constellations. And so when I start saying these myths are based on the constellations, actually, I think most people go, hmm. You know, I mean, almost everybody's probably like, no, oh, yeah, it makes sense. And they're like, no idea really what he's, you know, what does he have in mind by that? Because it's even hard to envision a constellation unless you know what to look for. That's another thing I talk about. It's a whole nother tangent we could go into, but um, I'll show you some visuals and try and explain it. And I always try and show, you know, maybe something slightly different than what I've shown on other podcasts. So uh, we'll see if, we'll see if these work or (laughs) Mm -hmm. if these are good examples, bad examples or, or not. So what I have to do, have you, um, have you enabled me to share my screen? I hope so. (laughs) Okay. Let's see. I will hit share screen and yeah, it looks like I can. So just bear with me for a moment while I get, uh, this going. Is that Amish inquisition podcast? Can you see my screen? Yeah. You want to delete those porn hope tabs though. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I always try and cover that up by moving the windows around. (laughs) I guess it wasn't fast enough. All right. Um, you Amish uh, are really strict. <laughs> I see. Um, no, it, you know, actually, it's, it's interesting to talk about how how these different sects, you know, the Amish is a very strict sect that um, arose from trying to take the Bible literally. And they're trying to figure out, you know, we're, we're in this world that, that doesn't come with instruction manual. And, and we're trying, we're all trying to figure out what's going on. But anyway, so some of these slides are not suitable for young children. And also if you're, if you really take the Bible literally, um, you know, cause <laughs> this will be, this will be, uh, potentially disturbing. So I will, uh, <laughs> I'll just launch right in. So this was just discovered in Pompeii, the ancient ruins of Pompeii. Uh, in 2018, this fresco was discovered. This is high, high quality artwork. It, it what, I mean, what's, what really caught everyone's attention was, um, first it had been laying under the ashes since we're told, you know, AD 79 is when we think that Vesuvius erupted and buried the town of Pompeii. And I made a video about it, um, in 2018, November was when this was discovered, but the quality of the art is very uh, high, but also it's, it's risque or, uh, erotic, frankly, erotic, right? This is a picture of a myth. She's, staring right but what really caught people's attention is she's staring right at the viewer she's breaking the fourth wall so to speak right <laughs> yeah 
Um, do you know what myth this is? I've no idea. The, you the see lady what's in this one? Yes. yes. One the right. Jupiter. Who said it? Yeah, that's right. You, you're both right. Two, <laughs> two points for uh, Ben and Phil and Matt. I don't think you got your answer in, in time. Um, who, who said it? Phil said Lita in the Swan, right? Was that you? That's Matt. I said, oh, Matt. No. Oh, okay. No points for Phil. <laughs> Good job, Matt. Ding, ding. Um, yeah, it's Lita in the Swan. And Ben correctly said this is one of the amorous affairs of, what'd you say? Was it one of those ducks that are on Jupiter? Yeah, one of the ducks on Jupiter. Okay, that's what you said. Yes. It's one of the amorous affairs of Jupiter, also known as Zeus. That's what I thought you were saying. <laughs> so this is one of the seductions of Zeus. He is constantly um, running off to have affairs with mortal women, right? And so he seduces Leda in the form of a swan. Now, you know, everybody loves the myths, but the myths are frankly sometimes bizarre and, and, and violent and, and then sexually explicit. So it's like when, when you're a child, you usually get exposed to the myths. You don't, you don't get exposed to all of them. Then later on as an adult, you're like, oh, I love the myths. And then you start reading them and you're like, this is just weird. I don't even know what it's talking about. <laughs> well, um, this is the story of Lita and the Swan and it's celestial. I'll just, I'll just jump ahead. Oh, Lita and the Swan. It was painted no later than AD 79, if we're correct about the date of the eruption of Vesuvius that yeah. horribly destroyed the city. I mean, it was a pyroclastic flow that came down of basically clouds and ash that were so hot. It was like many hundreds of degrees, uh, so many hundreds of degrees that it doesn't matter if it was Fahrenheit or Celsius. And it basically killed everybody on the spot and then buried him in ash. And so this was... This was just recently uncovered in 2018. This is the night sky. So if you're watching this on a mobile device, you probably want to look at it on a bigger, you know, on a big Mac screen or if you can throw it up onto your big screen. But can you, Matt, Ben, and Phil, see the stars there? Yeah. Yeah. Good. And we're looking south. We're in the northern hemisphere. And can you see in the center of the screen, there's a distinctive feature going up and down there? Ah, the Milky Way. That's the Milky Way, which I will outline here for all the viewers at home. So this is the brightest and the widest part of the Milky Way. Um, The Milky Way is a, you know, it's a band all the way around us. It's the galaxy that we're inside of. And this brightest part modern astronomers refer to as the galactic center. When we're looking in this direction, we believe we're looking towards kind of the center of that fried egg. I call it sometimes like if we're inside of a pancake, it's actually more like a fried egg that has a core at the center and the brightest part there is a galactic center just to orient you. And then there's this dark rift also that can uh, play a lot of roles in myth, but they call this part the dark rift. You can see it's like a path across the Milky Way. If I take it all out, can you still see all that? Yeah. There's the Milky yeah. Way, Galactic Center, Dark Rift. So now I'm going to bring in some constellations. So I'm using Stellarium here. Can you still see it okay? Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Can you make out the shapes of those constellations? So yep. mm-hmm. here we have in this story Zeus or Jupiter or Jove. He was called by the Romans Jove. And uh, he is seducing... Uh, a queen, actually, Leda, but he turns into the form of a swan to do it. Now, which which uh, constellation do you think might play Zeus out of all the ones that are on the screen here? Who do you think 
might be Zeus. Could it be Hercules? Who said that? Amish Phil. Amish Phil. Good job, Amish Phil. Let's see. Yay! That is Hercules right there. And it would be the the constellation who plays the most powerful deity in almost any myth system will be associated with this constellation because, well, it's a powerful-looking constellation. I mean, look at that outline. Look at the deep lunge. I mean, he's in a powerful body posture, but also has a big square head, uh, like a man with a big square beard, right? Ben is modeling the square-looking <laughs> shape there. This a lot of times... Club. Yeah, a lot of times, and he's got that huge weapon that he's menacing. You know, he's just menacing overhead. All right. Yeah, the myths are certainly not afraid of getting into all kinds of uh, subject, but that is the constellation Hercules that Phil has correctly identified. So I'll take the red circle away. So that is the that is the constellation that plays Zeus it plays a lot of different figures, not always a male figure. All the constellations can play both male or female figures in different, different myths, um, which you might not expect Hercules to play a female figure, but sometimes it does. Um, the Gorgons like Medusa are female, but if you look at ancient artwork of the Gorgons, they're depicted in the same outline as Hercules. And they usually have almost a square shaped head because they, they're depicted with like a a fringe of serpents, like a beard almost. Um, Sometimes a lion headed God will be associated with Hercules because it has a full mane or even Hanuman uh, in Hanuman in the midst of ancient India. He's a monkey headed God, but he has like a rough, uh, you know, like a monkey beard, uh, he's associated with Hercules and he carries a mace, which is a, a sure sign that we're almost a positive sign that we're dealing with Hercules. If you've got it, either yeah. a huge club, a huge hammer, a huge ax, I could show how it could be a hammer. Um, if It's just how you connect the lines, but mm-hmm. that's for sure Zeus. And here's an ancient uh, piece of pottery. We know it's depicting Zeus because the ancient artist even wrote Zeus. It's badly damaged. This one's in, uh, I think, Munich. You can go see it. This is kind of where the outline suggests the rest of the painting would have shown. And here's a recreation by a modern artist. Can you see some of the same characteristics as the constellation in that artwork? Yeah, the thunderbolts replace the club, hasn't it? That's right. So that powerful weapon could be a club. Who's the son of Zeus who usually swings a club and wears a lion skin over his head? Hercules. Uh, Hercules. That's who the constellation is named after. Yeah. So Hercules is has a lot of the same characteristics as Zeus, but his, his weapon's usually a club. But Zeus is a thunderbolt weapon. And actually, I don't show it on this one, but in other podcast um, slide presentations, I show some depictions of the Maya uh, codexes show a god in the same deep knee bend posture <laughs> holding a, a thunderbolt in almost the exact same depiction of a thunderbolt. And that thunderbolt also looks like the thunderbolt that Indra wields in the myths of ancient India. But look at the posture of Zeus. Look at his deep knee bend, his heel is raised, and his front arm is reaching out. You see the yeah. See the match to the Hercules constellation? Oh yeah. Definitely. Yeah. So, um, and some people have said, oh, well, you can't prove it just from artwork, which is true. 
I use artwork because we're on a podcast that has YouTube and it's easy to see. I could throw up some texts here too. This is, um, this is a translation of the Iliad that's online and you can see it. Zeus that thundereth on high. He's up actually above the Zodiac. He's close to the North star. Um, I could show where the North star is, but not to get off on a tangent. He is up above. If you go up the Milky way, the Zodiac basically runs along the bottom edge of our, our screen here. He's on high. He is Zeus who thunders on high. And this, this is a translation of the Iliad from this book was printed in 1924 and it was scanned in. And I think it's neat that before it was scanned in somebody back in the 1920s, he wrote thundereth on high. He thought that was pretty cool. So he actually, I think he underlined the Greek there on the left, but you can find in the text connections, which show that the constellation Hercules connects to Zeus. Here's one from a little bit later in the uh, Iliad. Zeus has a characteristic when he is asked for a favor. Sometimes he won't say anything. He'll think. And then if he nods his head, if he bows his head, he won't go back on it. And right here on page 43, this is in the Iliad chapter one, book one, lines 514 through 539. He, he's being asked by the mother of Achilles. She's coming to him and says, look, Zeus, my son Achilles, I know he is fated to die in this Trojan war, but can you please let him win some glory first? Right now, Agamemnon is totally disrespecting Achilles. Can you please um, let my son have some glory before he dies? Do it for me. And she hugs his knees and, and begs him and he thinks about it. And then finally he says, I bow my head. I will bow my head to thee. You can see, I put it that thou mayest be certain from this, from me is the surest token among the immortals. No word of mine may be recalled, nor is false, nor unfulfilled. Whereunto I bow my head. The son of Kronos spake and bowed his dark brow in assent, and the ambrosial locks waved from the king's immortal head, and he made great Olympus to quake. Wow. Now look at the head of Hercules there. Can you see that even the outline of the constellation looks like he's bowing his head slightly in a nod? Yeah, I would argue that is textual evidence that confirms that we're talking about this constellation. And in fact, when he nods his head, Olympus quakes. Look right down below Hercules. You see right down below Hercules, there's a uh, tombstone-shaped kind of constellation. Yes. That is Ophiuchus, the serpent holder. It's like a tombstone-shaped central obelisk with serpent halves on either side. Well, that constellation is extremely important in the ancient myths. It also plays a doorway sometimes. Can you see how it could play a doorway? Mm. It could also play a mountain and it does play a mountain. I can confirm from lots of textual analysis that that Ophiuchus plays famous mythological mountains, including Olympus. Why is Zeus up on top of Olympus? Because he's above Ophiuchus. So famous mountains in myth, like Mount Meru in the myths of ancient India, you'll see this tug of war that's going on between the, the, the good devas and the bad 
Asuras. They're, they're doing this tug of war and they're using a serpent. And in between is this mountain that's kind of narrower at the base and wider at the top. Well, do you see a mountain that's narrower at the base and wider at the top that has a serpent on either side? That's Ophiuchus. So anyway, I think we've presented enough evidence to argue that Zeus is associated with Hercules. I could go on and on, but there's Ophiuchus. Uh, yeah. Uh, I have a question. Sorry. The, uh, yeah, go, go for you it. mentioned that uh, Ephesus is uh, sometimes depicted as a doorway. Is it relevant yes. that that is at the opening to the dark rift? Uh, yes. <laughs> Good and, call uh, <laughs> by Amish Ben. <laughs> is See? that the journey to the, the um, you know, the other side? Valhalla. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> the journey to the underworld. Oops, I'm out of water. Oh, I got oh, it's a rift, not sometimes the river sticks and things like that. I've heard yep. that, I think. That's right. Um, in fact, I would argue that Ophiuchus plays the gates of hell uh, or the, the gates of Hades, the gates of the underworld in Greek myth. I talk about that in one of my books, Star Myths Volume 2. And in fact, underneath Ophiuchus, you see... <clears throat> sorry, I got a little something... You see Scorpio down there. Scorpio actually is depicted as having nine heads or seven heads in some uh, different myths. It's like a serpent with seven heads. But actually, uh, if you've got light pollution, the, you can see pretty easily three heads. And the dog that crouches down below the gates of Hades is the three-headed dog Kerberos. Or Cerberus, Kerberos. And um, so, yes, that that dark rift definitely plays the road down to the underworld. Good, very good connection by Amish Ben, five points. And um, in, in um, there are these myths of Eurydice. I didn't show Eurydice here. I did when I was talking with um, Sam Tripoli on his show, I mentioned Eurydice and showed some things about the Eurydice myth, Orpheus and Eurydice. Remember Orpheus, he could play the, the harp or the lyre and he had to go down and retrieve his beloved Eurydice from the underworld. Oh. Well, in the Native American myths, they have a very similar pattern of the, the beloved wife has gone down to the underworld and the husband, the intrepid husband goes down to retrieve her. And in their versions of the Orpheus and Eurydice myth, we shouldn't really call it the Orpheus and Eurydice myth as if the Greeks have a, a corner on the market for this myth, but their the North American versions of this myth, which are found all the way from the West Coast to the East Coast in various, various variations in all these different uh, Native American nations and tribes, preserve more aspects of the story. And a lot of times they go down, the hero has to go down uh, like a very narrow path or a rope bridge. And there's a bird that tries to scare him into the water. You can see um, the constellation Aquila, the eagle, just to the left of Ophiuchus, and up above there is uh, the swan that tries to scare him into the water and turn him into a fish. If he falls into the water, he'll turn into a fish. And there's um, a constellation Delphinus right there. I'm pointing to my screen. I guess no one can see that. But anyway, um, yes, that path is really important. The dark rift uh, plays a role of a path or a, uh, a crossing of the Red Sea in the myth of Moses. You can see that Ophiuchus is holding out a rod or a staff over that rift right there. That's where the 
that's where the sea parts for the crossing of the Red Sea. So it's a really important feature. Good, good catch, Amish Ben. Now we're totally off track on time. Right. We got to now we got to stop. That's it. No, um, I'll keep going if you want. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. Show you, yeah. show you the Absolutely. swan. So Hercules is right next to a swan. Um, so yeah, we'll get back to the swan. So remember, we're talking about Leda and the swan. So Zeus is often turning into different things in order to seduce mortal women. And in this case, he turns into a swan. Can you see the whole swan, or is my? Yeah, I've got a little. Yeah, we've got uh, it. Yeah. Okay, yeah. I got a little message up top that says you are screen sharing. It's kind of covering the swan on my screen. It's not covering it for you? No, it's fine. No, we can see. Good. Okay. That is the constellation called that we call Cygnus the Swan. He can play the role of different celestial birds. Um, often it plays a swan, but sometimes it can play an angel or a dove descending down the Milky Way. But that, I would argue, is what Hercules turns into in order to seduce Leda in the story of Leda the Swan. Now, who could be Leda? Well, for a long time, uh, I thought for sure it was Sagittarius. See Sagittarius down there? That's Sagittarius. Sagittarius plays the role of a beautiful maiden, a beautiful goddess in a lot of myths. But... um, Actually, as I was preparing this, I started to rethink it a little bit. I'm not sure that Sagittarius is Leda in this case, because does anyone know who are the um, offspring of Zeus and Leda? No. So it's really important, actually, for the esoteric meaning. So Leda is the queen of Sparta, and her husband, the king of Sparta, is off in a battle. And that's when Zeus says, aha, here's my chance. She's so beautiful, I'm going to seduce her while he's gone. But... Um, he realizes that if he gets her pregnant, uh, when the king comes back, he'll be like, okay, who uh, is the father here? Because I was off in battle. I will have to kill my wife or something, you know. So he's going to have to arrange for the king to come home that same night. This is a pattern that happens in Greek myth a lot, where the uh, there'll be two twin sons born. One will be from Zeus who or another god who was there earlier in the evening. And then the God will arrange for the mortal husband to come home so that it doesn't uh, raise any suspicion. And then there'll be a mortal child. So this oh, is the sons, Cast- the twins, one is mortal and one is immortal of Ca- this. Castor uh, and Pollux. That is it. That's right. That's right. So I actually, um, if we have time, I'll zoom out to Stellarium and show you, uh, or in the interest of time, I was going to zoom out to Stellarium, but I show it here. There's a different part of the sky. I could show you how we get from where we were to where I'm looking now. Mm-hmm. I've advanced the sky a little bit. If you look down at the bottom, the date and time, but you can still see Cygnus off there now on the right side of the screen. Yeah. Yeah. Is this the Northern hemisphere then David? And the other was the Southern cause I'm recognizing. No, no, I'm still in the Northern hemisphere facing oh, South. Okay. All that's happened right. is the night has progressed and the stars have wheeled across the sky oh, yeah, like a totally giant right. wheel, yeah. just like the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. All the stars do that too. So I was going to zoom out and show you on Stellarium, but just in the interest of time, I'm just sh- jumping to another part of the sky that's connected. Mm-hmm. It's just a little further behind the part of the sky I was looking at. Do you want me to go to Stellarium and show you? No, no. no okay. Um, just, I mean, it would be a little bit of a smoother transition, but I think that if 
Zeus turns into Cygnus, or turns into a swan, which he does. Zeus has just, that's actually Zeus's upraised arm at the far right. He's sinking down into the west. He's in the far right. That's like his hip and his elbow. And then you see the lyre, and then you see Cygnus. You see Lyra the lyre there. So he's sunk down into the west, but he's turned into the swan, and he's going to go find a mortal woman who's going to become the mother of Castor and Pollux. And I would argue that probably in this case, it is the constellation Andromeda. There's Andromeda. She's right next to the great square of Pegasus. And you can see Pegasus off to kind of the right and below that red circle I've drawn. You see, it looks kind of like a horse. (laughs) Yep. Yep. And so she's the queen of Sparta, which in the Odyssey, they talk about horses and Sparta. And when Telemachus, the son of Odysseus, goes to Sparta, the, the king of Sparta tries to give him horses. And he says, no, I'm from a rocky island that's better suited for goats. Down below, you see Capricorn, the goat. <laughs> um, so Sparta is associated with horses. So I'd argue it is pri- quite possible that Leda is actually associated with Andromeda and her offspring are the twins of Gemini. You can see how they kind of may be uh, envisioned as her offspring. You know, she's given birth to the twins of Gemini. And one is mortal and one is immortal because of the ruse that Zeus came up with that I just told you about. And that's very common. So which one's mortal, which one's immortal? Pollux is immortal. And that's the brighter star, which is on the far left. And Castor is mortal. And that's the dimmer star. It's on the right and up upwards on our screen. So Zeus seduces lots of different women. Uh, He also seduces Danae. She's the mother of Perseus. Have you ever heard of the, the story of Perseus? Yeah. Yes, yes, yeah. She's put into a she's put into a uh, a chamber under the ground because in a in a oracle her father has been told her father's the king he's been told that uh, if if she has a child you know her son will will cause the death of the king and take over the the throne from him and he says well that I don't want that to happen I'm going to put my daughter in a stone chamber or a bronze chamber sometimes it's called or a brass chamber there's different variations under the ground and that way no one will ever uh, have a son with her and then I won't be killed and of course Zeus says you know she's very beautiful I'm going to figure out a way to get into that bronze chamber or that stone chamber that's under the earth and he does so in the form of a you know, no, he descends in the form of a shower of gold, actually, which, uh, you know, these are, mm. these are fairly, uh, sexually explicit stories. <laughs> um, this is an ancient picture. Yeah. It's an ancient picture, but he, he comes in through the ventilation cracks of the, uh, of the, of this bronze chamber. And there's an ancient picture that shows it. You can see that kind of those are like gold coins, like falling into her lap there. Yeah. This is a more modern depiction by someone named Gustav Klimt, who was a famous painter in the early 1900s. If you watched uh, when I was on uh, Judith Quoba's night flight show, you can go back and watch the video. Uh, uh, Klimt, Gustav Klimt did a painting of Judith. She's a, a figure in the uh, Apocrypha yeah. who cuts off someone's head. Um, Famous, so he's famous for these kinds of paintings, but you can see the golden uh, shower there. So he's, he's famous for these kind of very frankly erotic paintings. But 
who could be, uh, if Danae is the mother of Perseus, who could play uh, Danae? Well, once again, it could be Sagittarius because the Milky Way flows down onto Sagittarius. I would say that's what Zeus turns into, the Milky Way. There's the Milky Way. This is a fainter part of the Milky Way. But based on, look at these paintings and look at where Andromeda is. And the, the, the shower could uh, be Zeus descending onto Andromeda and she's in that, you know, square box there under the earth. You see the square, the great square that she's connected to. Mm. And who is her child? Perseus. From the myths, it's Perseus. And there's Perseus right there. It looks like the child of Andromeda. And so, uh, you know, the, then the, the king's uh, messengers come and say, um, hey, king, I know you don't want to hear this, but um, Danae uh, <laughs> has a child. And he says, what? How did that happen? Well, I think it might be the child of a god. This is an, a virgin birth. This is very common in myths around the world where there's a child of a god. Um, this is a virgin birth story. And then Perseus and his mother are put out into the sea in an ark. And, and, they, and they float away and land on an island. And that's where Perseus grows up into this hero that goes off and eventually uh, has to battle the Gorgons and, and slay Medusa. So, but you can see how this myth is based on it, or you can see how Zeus's various seductions are based on the, the celestial features around him. He turns into a swan in this case. Sometimes he turns into a shower, which could be the Milky Way. I would argue it's almost certainly the Milky Way. I'm just not sure if it's falling down onto Andromeda in the story or onto Sagittarius. Um, he turns into an eagle at one point to seduce a different woman, which <laughs> There's Aquila, the eagle, is directly below Cygnus. You can still see it just there right above the W for West on your screen. It's got a very bright star. Yeah. That's um, Altair. It's bright star there in its eye. So why am I going into all this? this? This happens around the world. This is actually a different seduction scene. See, the the Christians came along and said, oh, the the pagans are, you know, St. Augustine, when he wrote The City of God, said the pagan gods are just terrible. They're always off seducing and, uh, you know, having marital infidelity. But he either didn't know or else he knew and covered up the fact that the Bible is based on this exact same system. Because this is a seduction that happens or a, um, an episode that happens in the Bible. Do you guys know what that is? No, I don't. This is a famous character who's up on the roof up here. This is a painting from the 1500s. You see this character up on the roof right here? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Looking down at someone bathing. Someone, she's got like a basin there. Yeah. Come on, guys. Didn't you go to Sunday school? I'm just kidding. Um, I just wanted to use that line. <laughs> line from Indiana Jones. Uh, that is David and Bathsheba. David spies Bathsheba while she is bathing. Her husband, by the way, is Uriah, who's a great general. And what's he doing? He's off fighting one of the wars for David. <laughs> Same pattern that we just talked about. Yeah. And David says, you know what? She is really beautiful. I want to uh, sleep with her, but I'm going to have to figure out how to get Uriah home. Just <laughs> what, that's, what happens is he has to figure out how to get Uriah home because he gets her pregnant. So, and then he says, why don't you come home and sleep with your wife? And he's like, oh, I, I can't sleep with my wife. I'm, 
all my men are still out at the front. How could I go? You know, I'm going to sleep on the ground right here. And David's like, okay, that didn't work. Now we have to come up with a different plan. We'll have to kill Uriah. So uh, the same sorts of things that the early Christians complained about that are happening in the myths are happening in the Bible. It's just, they're happening with, not with a bunch of different gods. They're happening with a bunch of different characters. Here's another one of um, a different painting from same era, 1500s. Uh, this painter is showing Bathsheba bathing basically in a fountain type thing. And there's David up in the window. So that's there. the shadow. That's the, the, uh, the shower again, the golden shower, the fountain. Yeah. Maybe. So where I think in this case, for sure, she is connected with Sagittarius. Look, there's Sagittarius. Look at the outline. Pause, yeah. Now look at Hercules is up on the roof. You see Ophiuchus again. Yeah. You see how Ophiuchus has a little roof? You see, yeah. I mean, the Bible, the text says David is on the roof. <laughs> David is associated with Hercules, just like Zeus is. He looks down and sees a beautiful maiden bathing. That's Sagittarius. She's at the widest part of the Milky Way, which is sometimes envisioned as a pool in different myths. We'll have different Greek goddesses who are bathing in a pool. And then it's, it's Sagittarius. I could show you, I've shown in some other podcasts and other videos how the goddess uh, Artemis, when she's bathing, Diana, Artemis, Diana to the Romans is bathing. And then um, uh, there's ancient artwork that shows Artemis bathing in the exact uh, posture of Sagittarius. But look at how the Sagittarius, look at the, um, it's almost like she's carrying a bow. Look at the painting from the 1500s. You see how her arms are. And then look at the bow of Sagittarius. Yeah. And you see how she almost has, look at, she's like got a scarf. Yeah. She's wearing a long silken scarf. See how it kind of like poofs up behind her hair Yeah, a little bit, like poofs off of her hair. You see the little feature on Sagittarius? Yeah, yeah, it's bang yeah. on. And here, here we have a different, this is the other one that I showed. I could show lots of pictures of Bathsheba, but it's how she has her hand. Mm. It matches the Sagittarius. Yeah. This is to show that David is associated with Hercules. This is David slaying a famous giant. I know you just <laughs> talked about giants. Last week. Yeah. This is from the 1500s again, or early 1600s, Peter Paul Rubens. Look at the outline of David that he's chosen to portray David in. Yeah, it's got that see anything same. familiar there? <laughs> yeah, the, the, the bent knees again and, and the implement yeah. over his head. Yeah. He's ready to strike. And, and where is he stepping? Like right on the <laughs> temple of the giant's head. <laughs> so, wow. and we can we can be sure that David is is associated with this constellation because right to the left, I didn't even show it. I should have put an arrow next to it. But right to the left of Hercules, there's a constellation with a really bright star. It looks like kind of a a, a V-shaped uh, musical instrument with two strings on it. Mm. That is the lyre. That's Lyra the lyre, just to the left of Hercules. And David plays the harp, you know, or the lyre yeah. in a lot of verses in the Bible. So there's no doubt in my mind that, I mean, I'm just showing a few examples. I could go on for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of examples, but the myths around the world, including the stories in the Bible, are based on this same universal worldwide celestial system of metaphor. So, oh yeah, there's uh Oh, yeah. Why am I putting that arrow there? Oh, yeah. Because oh, the son of David. Remember how we saw the son of Andromeda is Perseus? 
or I'm arguing that's a possibility that Andromeda is Danae, uh, or they, they pronounce it different. You'll, you'll hear it pronounced different ways. I've seen multiple uh, ways of pronouncing the name of Perseus's mother, but often a constellation right near another constellation will be descended from it. Who's descended from David? Do you know? Solomon. That's right. So right below David is Ophiuchus, and that is Solomon in between the pillars. Uh, Ophiuchus has those two pillars. Here, I'll make it small so you can see. See how Solomon is seated between the pillars, but he's also descended from David. See, see how he's descended from David? That's the, that's the temple that he built. And in this, this is the scene of the famous judgment of Solomon. Yeah. This painting here is by Raphael, famous painter, lived in the same time period that those others that I've shown. They were definitely showing their knowledge of this system, or at least someone who taught them knew this system, or somehow this system got passed down to them. The famous story of the Judgment of Solomon, I've talked about it in other places, but I'll just, because if, if you have time, I'll just close yeah. kind of my little slideshow with what this, what is this about? Why are, why are they doing this? Mm. Um there's two babies in this story. Does everyone know the story? I, d- I do. I Judgment know. of Solomon? I don't. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I know, Phil, I know Phil knows a lot about the Bible because he was asking me about Balthasar, Balthasar, the, the Feast of Balthasar. Balthasar. <laughs> Balthasar um, son of Nebuchadnezzar, right? Um, but uh, this is the story of right after Solomon is asked by the Lord, what do you want? ask me anything. God basically says to Solomon, ask for whatever you want. This is actually a pattern that's found in myths around the world as well. We find um, King Midas is asked, you know, what do you want? Well, I want everything to turn to gold. Bad, bad answer. (laughs) Solomon says, (laughs) Solomon says, I want wisdom. I need, I need help. I am judging this people that is so vast they're as numberless as the stars. In fact, I'm judging these people and I need wisdom. I don't know. I'm like a little child. Can you give me wisdom? And God says, I'm glad you asked that. That's what you could have asked for long life. You could have asked for power over your enemies. You could have asked for um, riches, but you asked for wisdom. So I'm going to give you those other things too, but I'm going to give you wisdom. I'm going to give you a wise and understanding heart. Very specifically says that. And right after that, this scene of the judgment of Solomon happens. Like the very next verses, this is in the book of um, uh, first Kings. I, I always get it confused whether it's first Kings or second Kings off the top of my head, but pretty sure it's first Kings chapter three. Anyway, right after that, we're told that Solomon is approached by two prostitutes who have each had a child at about the same time, but one overlay the baby during the night and it died. And then they both come to the King and they say, Hey, uh, uh, we've got a problem here. She, she, she smothered her baby by accident. And then she gave me the dead one and she kept my baby. That's a live one. And the other one said, no, 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 that's not true. She overlay her baby. And she, she's trying to get me to give her my baby. And Solomon says, Hmm, what should I do? I don't know which one's telling the truth. You see it right in the text. So he comes up with a brilliant plan, right? You guys all know the story. He says, I know (laughs) cut the baby in two. Give one half to each of them. Problem solved. 
Now we know he's talking to someone else. I used to think when I heard this story in Sunday school that if Solomon pulled out a sword and said, I'm going to cut it in half. But in the, in the text itself, he says, he says to someone else. And then one of the women cries out and says, don't do it. Don't do it. Give her the baby. I don't care. And the other one says, no, 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 no. Cut it in half. That's a good, that's a good solution. And Solomon says, stop. Obviously he wouldn't have to say stop if he's holding the sword himself. So he's talking to someone else. Uh, Who's he talking to? Like Hercules. Hercules. <laughs> he's talking. He's talking to the swordsman, who's played by Hercules. Ophiuchus is played by. I mean, Solomon is played by Ophiuchus. He's in between the pillars. He's the king who builds the temple. Yeah. He's descended from David. In this case, Hercules is not playing David anymore. David is no longer on the scene. But the swordsman, you can see, is holding the sword in the very same way. And there's other paintings that show it even more dramatically. But these. The paintings don't prove it, but I can show from lots and lots of other examples that this is what's going on. Yeah. So if you look, there's two women in this scene. There's Sagittarius, and I just put the label under Virgo. She's underneath the painting of, can you see Virgo lying on her back with one arm outstretched? That's right, yeah. And then on the left, we have Sagittarius. Those are the two mothers, I would argue, in this scene. And who's the baby? If you look up at Hercules, look at Hercules. There's um, another constellation right in front of Hercules, a beautiful little constellation called the Northern Crown or Corona Borealis, Corona Borealis. And if you now watch Hercules's arm, see his lower outstretched arm. I would argue that the ancients would sometimes draw some extra connections in their mind to make the myths work. You could imagine Hercules grasping that crown. See that? Yep. Yeah, like he is in the now, painting. Pardon? Just as he is in the painting. Yeah, look look at the painting. What is arched in the painting that's being held by Hercules? <laughs> the baby. A baby. It's always drawn in this hard arch. You guys have you guys are young dads, you have babies. Do they ever get really mad and arch? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. And yeah. Piss on you? <laughs> 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 yes. <laughs> when they're really, really mad, they will arch like that. Well, you know, this is like found around the world, Hercules grasping a baby. Now, I would argue this is really good argument that this is the same system around the world. Because if you look at the Northern Crown, most people would not immediately go, aha, an arching baby. I'll put that into a story. <laughs> you might think of it as a crown or a necklace. And it does play those things in lots of different myths, like the <gasps> necklace that Loki steals from um, Freya in the Norse myths, I'm sure is the Northern crown. It looks like a necklace. You could argue that different cultures would think of it as a necklace, but for multiple cultures to think of that as an arching baby and have Hercules lifting it up is a hard argument to make. And I would argue that uh, that shows that this is part of some ancient worldwide system. So, um, so I've put in here, Ophiuchus, I think corresponds to King Solomon here is, He's associated with Ophiuchus. There's lots of other evidence that he's associated with Ophiuchus. The swordsman here is associated with Hercules. The baby, northern crown. Uh, I would argue that the mother with one outstretched arm there is Virgo. Can you see that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. See how she's got an outstretched arm? You might say, wait, she's got two outstretched arms. But actually, her second outstretched arm is kind of uh, connected to her lower skirt there. So if you looked at the outline, it actually matches up pretty well with Virgo. And then the other one with her arm out, I think, 
and pointing in two directions is Sagittarius. If you look, Sagittarius kind of has a bow pointing one way and a plume going the other way, just the same way her arm is going the same way as that plume. Anyway, Sagittarius, the reason why I say it's pretty certain that it's Sagittarius is not just because of this painting. I'll show you in a minute why, but who's the dead baby. If the Northern crown is the live baby. Oh, any ideas? The Southern Southern crown. crown. Yes. 10 points for all of you. Southern crown right there next to Sagittarius. So there's a Southern crown baby. So which mother belongs to the live baby and which mother belongs to the dead baby? This is the hardest question. 100 points. <laughs> the, I'm going to say the opposites. Oh, yes. Say Virgo. Yes. 100 points to Matt. Was that Matt? <laughs> yeah. Yes. Southern crown is the dead baby has been placed next to Sagittarius, but the dead baby belongs to Virgo. The live baby belongs to Sagittarius. I'll tell you why in a minute. But so the live baby is being lifted up and is about to be cut in half by Hercules. And Ophiuchus or Solomon suddenly says, stop, hold on, give it to her. The one who said, don't cut it in half. She's obviously been the victim of a switch. Now, this story is obviously metaphor, I would argue. It's not literal because why would the other mother yell out? Yes, cut it in half. She was just trying to get the baby a second ago. She was trying to, right? So she wouldn't say cut it in half, but it's a, unless she was just overcome by the whole emotion of the thing, but it's a metaphor. It's a very powerful metaphor. It's just like the two twins of Gemini. What is the important characteristic of the two twins of Gemini? One's mortal and one's immortal. Correct. In this case, one baby is alive and one is dead. (laughs) One is the baby, a mother. um, There's a mother. We have, two births. This is the system. I'll just quickly show you. This is the Zodiac. This is from uh, an author, a writer in the 16, this was published in, I think, 1613 by Johann Daniel Melius. Uh, This is his depiction of the Zodiac. It has four stations on the year, just to quickly, the equinoxes are on the two sides here. Those are the the fall equinox is where we go down into the lower half of the year. I like this depiction because it's got the dark half of the year is the lower is set up. It's set up for the lower half in this depiction. It's going around clockwise. You could draw it going counterclockwise. It doesn't matter. It's just like a map. It's not a, you know, this is like a diagram to explain, but the equinoxes are there on basically the nine and the three o'clock positions and the solstices are at the 12 and the six. So the lowest point of the year is down there at the winter solstice. The higher highest point of the year is up there at the very tip top summer solstice and the fall equinox is where we plunge into the lower half of the year. And that's where I'll just give you quickly my interpretation of what's going on with these two mothers, which happen in lots of myths. There's two mothers in lots of myths. There's two Marys, in in the Jesus stories, Osiris has Isis and Nephthys um, around him all the time. Look at these two mothers. This is which constellation is right before the fall equinox in this setup? Do you know? Virgo. That's Virgo. And where is the uh, second mother? We we say I argue that the second mother is played by which. Gemini. Zodiac constellation? Sagittarius. No, no, it's Sagittarius, right. The beautiful Sagittarius, she's right next to the fountain, remember? That's Sagittarius. So those are the two mothers. 
The first birth is when you plunge down into the mortal realm. The second birth is when you start to wake up and rise up and go back up. It's at the lowest point. And this has to do with recovery. It's actually, it's not just about, okay, we come down into this physical body from the spiritual realm. It is portraying that, but it also has to do with like the burial of your essential self, your actual self. And in fact, the, the Jesus stories, there's a twin in the Jesus stories too. Do you know who it is? <laughs> Answers on the screen. <laughs> Thomas. Uh, Thomas. <laughs> Thomas Didymus. Yeah. Thomas the, the, the twin. The, yeah. Thomas the twin. Didymus means twin in Greek. And Jesus says, listen to me. This is in one of the Gnostic books, Thomas the Contender, that was found in the Nag Hammadi. Since it has been said that you are my twin and true companion, examine yourself and learn who you are. I don't want you to be ignorant of your self. This is about, we actually don't know it. It's quite common that we don't know it, but our self has been buried, has been suppressed. We've been split apart from it. That's why you have to be shown it. That's why the second birth comes later. You start to figure out, wait a minute. Uh, it, some, sometimes you never figure out that you have a true self, but hopefully you do. And Jesus says, look, it's not fitting for you to be ignorant of yourself. So that's what's going on. That's what's happening, I would argue, in the story of Doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas. This is a picture of uh, the doubting part of ourselves, or actually we have many doubting parts. This is from cutting edge healers and therapists like Dr. Richard Schwartz, who taught, if you guys know about psychology or psych, psych, psychological therapy, psychotherapy, therapy, Dr. Richard Schwartz has a system called internal family systems, or I mentioned Dr. Gabor Mate, who talks about how trauma causes us to become separated from our self without even knowing it. So we, we have like an egoic mind that protects us from ourself. Who's the, who's the self in this picture? Jesus. Right. The divine, the divine unbreakable. So it's like the Gemini twins. There's a divine twin. Mm. There's a mortal twin. You have a self that's unbreakable undamageable no matter what trauma you go through but you get these your mind creates these parts that protect you from the self because the self is courageous the self is curious the self is compassionate and if you've been burned by being courageous let's say you stood up to a domineering father and then you got the crap beaten out of you your mind can throw up parts that say, let's not let that self do that again. That self gets us beaten. You know, let's suppress that. Let's bury it somewhere where we won't even know it is down there. And you going through your life, you have to get back in touch with yourself. Our biggest problem is we're out of touch with ourselves. That's one of the things that the myths are, are doing with all this. So let me uh, escape out of here. That's 
That's what I think is going on. That's one of the things that's going on in these myths. Is, is that coherent? Yeah. It's, <laughs> I used up all two hours. Oh, it's fine. I think it's, it's very powerful. And I, I love the way that you, you know, it's, it's great sort of analyzing these stories and find the connections, but you actually relate it to ourselves and what are the lessons and how we can implement these things, which is really important, I think. Yeah, thanks. I mean... I had to go through that because I, I was taking them literally and I found a lot of value in taking them literally. And then when I realized I could no longer take them literally, then the question is, okay, is it just a big game or what, what's it doing? And uh, so people could accuse me of, Oh, I'm trying to find meaning where it's not there, but I think it's pretty clear that this is what they are doing. Uh, I've, I've, put a lot of arguments together this is one of their central themes that whole twins pattern is found around the world one of their central themes is recovery of the self i i think that can be argued almost without uh without a doubt um and it's taken me a long time of you know wrestling what are they trying to say i think they're i think they're actually works of complete genius that are uh that are telling us things on multiple, multiple levels about sacred geometry and all these other things that are in there. But I think one of their central themes is what, what I just said. I think that's maybe one of their most important themes. Cause that's what I think is, I think our society that we're in is just a giant trauma inducing society. And a lot of the polarization that you see going on in the United States right now, or, you know, wherever you are is deliberate, uh, people who know how to use psychology but are using it in a harmful way instead of a helpful way. And the myths are, the myths can be used in a good way or a bad way, just like Kung Fu can be used in a good way or a bad way. And psychology can be used in a good way or a bad way, but I'm pretty sure that they can be used in a good way. Wow, that's a fantastic way, to, I think, to to wrap it up, I think. You know, this really? this system that's been maintained and and nurtured for millennia it it does suggest that the has that it's not just fairy tales and stories that it really there really are applicable lessons and this is why it's great to have people like you studying this and bringing it to light for for you know uh normies like us who you know don't know a greek myth from a you know whatever yeah don't say that i would say the myths the myths are teaching you there's no normies everybody is everybody's got a divine self in there it's there already it's already there but we're we're isolated from it but to reach our full potential we've got to get in touch with it but we're suppressing it all the time and our parts are trying to steer the ship all the time or steer the chariot and they're always running off in the, the ditch somewhere which believe me i steer my chariot into the ditch every single day <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but uh yeah thanks for the thanks for those kind words but uh i think brilliant it's uh it's it's really really great to share it uh i really commend what you gentlemen are doing with your podcast i wish it tremendous success in the years ahead and uh thank you so much for reaching out and inviting me over to the north of england it's been up lancashire it's been an absolute <laughs> pleasure thanks so much yeah. dave for spending your time yeah. with us um don't forget to check uh, check out the website uh, the link will be in the description as usual 
and uh, all the links were if, if you want to follow Dave on social media and check out his blog, everything will be there. And please do because it's fascinating stuff. And uh, mm. yeah, mm. crack it. We better uh, we'll we'll let you go. Just hang on the line for us while we uh, play ourselves out, yeah. and uh, we'll catch you in a minute. Catch you on the flip side. Don't touch that dial. Right then, we're back. The dwarf, the cripple, and the mother of madness. That was our chat with the legend that is David Matheson. How good was mm. that? It was. Fantastic. I don't like saying he was the best, but he was the <laughs> best. We don't have any favourites here. Everyone no. brings their own, um, you yeah. know, viewpoints and their own. He's uh, he was my um, fav- most favourite astro theologist <laughs> okay. we've had so far. No, I think it was brilliant. Audio visual treat. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was amazing what he put together there. Mm. Yeah, definitely go to the website, starmythworld.com, where you can find yep. um, loads of information, his blog and videos, and uh, the video I did with Comet Tan recently, and check mm-hmm. his books out. I got Astral Theology for Life, and I was hot. What I often do when I get a new book is go to the... Um, the what's the ending. <laughs> yeah, the ending, the uh, references. Okay. I look at the references and there was René Schwalder uh, Lubitsch, Hamlet's Mill, Graham Hancock, John Anthony West. I was like, fucking hell, I'm going to love this. <laughs> and I was right. I loved it. I got halfway through <laughs> and I ordered uh, Myth and Trauma, which I haven't started yet. <clears throat> I was taking a break. Mix right. it up a bit, but yeah, brilliant. Check out his it's, books. Mm, it's quite interesting mm. how he sort of got the psychology bit in. Like sort of like the meaning between of the myths and what it means for you as a person. Well, this is That's why quite interesting. This yeah, is why the I got myth this and trauma. Myth yeah. and trauma. You know, uh, yeah, it's good relating things. You know that it's not just well I said in the podcast and you know, not just fairy tales. But that these things are relevant and they're they're le- they've got lessons to teach us. So mm. brilliant, brilliant work. Keep it up, Dave. Mm. Fantastic. Okay then. Housekeeping. Oh. Housekeeping. Housekeeping. iTunes reviews we need. Have we had any more iTunes reviews recently? I don't know. I've, I've not been keeping track and looking. No, I've so. been I've been locked out of everything now because all the passwords have changed, haven't they? <laughs> uh, subscribe to us on the YouTube channel. Uh, obviously, this podcast is a. Uh, a prime reason to go to the YouTube because we have some visual aids and uh, it'll make a lot more oh, sense yeah. to to you if you can uh, yes go and and see you know put a picture to what Dave was talking about it helps you visualize these things so yeah check out the YouTube channel send us articles clips videos memes artwork messages as usual email us at the armistinquisition at gmail dot com um, you know what else you can do. Uh, before before you toss the coin, <laughs> okay. No, you can check out the Amish loot chest. Yeah. At, oh yeah. At Teespring, we've yeah. finally finally got some merch going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some top quality merch. I'm, I believe I had all the t-shirt that you can't buy <laughs> last week. Yeah, you can get you can uh, get your uh, current grape t-shirt. You can, can you have you have you put that on? I have. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Uh, you can get. Oh, got it. Yeah, I you can get your. Put on your fucking muzzle. 
face mask. <laughs> yes. Yes, you can. Yeah, I won't be getting one of those. <laughs> have so, children. Yeah, yes, you know, it's it's more um, of a souvenir. I, I, it's more of a souvenir. I, I, Not, I don't I, think many people have the balls to actually wear one. Don't know. Um, and I think I quite fancy the black hoodie with the red Army Inquisition strip on. Right, right. Yeah, that was my favourite. Subtle. So you know, buy one of those. By ten. Yeah, my favourite I think, I think is um, I like I like Ben's Ben's design. The literal the literal communist. Because I'm literally a communist. Get your literal communist hoodies. Yeah, so go to um well I'll put I'll put a link in the description, but you can find our um Teespring store and support us that way. Every little helps. Um, all super limited edition and I imagine we're going to be mixing it up um, as and when we can be bothered <laughs> to design new stuff <laughs> um, how else can you become a producer of the show ben. you can Venmo us some cash <clears throat> I think toss a coin to your witcher old valley of plenty old valley of plenty I think you're hitting, hitting the point Phil Toss a coin to your that. whole valley of plenty. Uh, 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 it really bothers me. Uh, 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 because I, I'm believe, I, I have an issue in this respect. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Toss us a coin. Toss us a coin. Go to the armsinquisition.com and you can see the PayPal button there. Or click on the tab that's labelled "How do you become a producer?" Mm. Various ways, but monetary donations will will be accepted. Speed the process with. Yeah. Do you know? Cash. You know, you need to support the number one podcast in the British Virgin Isles. Yes, you Absolutely, do. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. How many British territories are there in the world? There can't be that many left. Listen, <laughs> we're number one in. Probably ten percent of them, maybe. <laughs> so there's Montserrat, the tiny little island in the Caribbean. Mm. America, of course. <laughs> um, Fol- Falklands. Mm-hmm. Um, Gibraltar. Is it, is it Saint Helena? Isn't that one Saint Helena? Helena, yeah, yeah. Gibraltar, Rock of Gibraltar, <laughs> yeah. I bet there's less than ten, which means you know we're hitting hitting ten percent. Yeah, we're not uh, we're not still number one oh. in all categories. We're still number one in philosophy and society and culture. <laughs> Somehow, nice. we beat we beat off Oprah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Oprah. Yeah, <coughs> uh, not so, popular in the BVM. Yeah, mm. that was funny. BVI, BVI. <laughs> yeah, I found that uh, really funny. Um, I suppose we should thank our producers for episode 157, shouldn't we? Yeah. Go on, then. Uh, Good list this week. Gav Scott, Luke Perry, Tamborista, Natasha Edgington, Amity the Artist, Full Metal Keto as Fuck, Triple Six, Rookie Triple Six, Giz Bane and Nate Armstrong. You're so amazing. Wait, wait. Was was Luke Perry in Beverly Hills 90210? Yeah, recently. Did he not die recently? 
Oh, right. <laughs> okay. It's not funny, Ben. Not Sorry. funny. <laughs> I think he died. One of them died. Someone has died. Please go on. Uh, uh, yeah, thanks. <laughs> You're so amazing. They are. Yeah. So um, keep it up. Continued support. Um, I've, yes. Yeah. We yeah. don't always get to use everything we get sent, but it is appreciated. And, you know, some things that, that we can carry over to next week will do. Um, I suppose, oh, fucking hell, we have to do it, don't we? We do it every week. <laughs> You know, it's just, you know, super painful. Like a judgment day and terminating mode like. The magic vaccine. A big fat shot in the ass from hell. Dr. Yayanta Bhattacharya. Hurt the Bible, hurt God. This is such a crock of shit. This is Dr. Bhattacharya. Yeah, we've had some uh, rather big COVID nineteen news this week. Let's um, yeah. let's start with something that happened earlier in the week. France has announced a second national lockdown, and Germany a partial lockdown in an attempt to combat spiralling cases of COVID nineteen. Leaders are urging people to stay at home and reduce social contact as much as possible. Each period of confinement will last at least a month. Measures range from, in France, a full closure of so-called non-essential business and only short, necessary outings allowed, to in German, Germany, the German measures are a so-called lockdown light, where contact between two households is the maximum allowed. But they aren't the only European nations to impose such strict measures. Ireland returned to its highest level of restrictions on the 22nd of October. Its lockdown is expected to last for six weeks. There, no social or family gatherings are allowed in homes or gardens, but people can meet outdoors with one other household. Fun times. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, Europe started locking down, lockdown two again this week. Mm. And, you know, I don't know how anyone could have predicted this, but uh, <laughs> last night we had an announcement from the Prime Minister. In this country, alas, as across much of Europe, the virus is spreading even faster than the reasonable worst-case scenario of our scientific advisers. 
whose models, as you've just seen, now suggest that unless we act, we could see deaths in this country running at several thousand a day, a peak of mortality, alas, uh, bigger than the one we saw in April. And so now is the time to take action because there is no alternative. And from Thursday until the start of December, you must stay at home. You may only leave home for specific reasons, including for education, for work, let's say if you cannot work from home, for exercise and recreation outdoors with your household or on your own uh, with one person from another household, uh, for medical reasons, appointments, uh, and to escape injury or, or harm, to shop for food and essentials, and to provide care for vulnerable people or as a volunteer. I'm afraid non-essential shops, leisure, and entertainment venues will all be closed, though click-and-collect services can continue, and essential shops will remain open, so there's no need to stock up. Yeah, we're going into another lockdown. <coughs> lockdown 2.0. Yeah. Yeah, that's just going to go on day. in terminating mode, like, but... Mm-hmm. Um, it's just going to go on forever, isn't it, I think? Well, that was last <coughs> night, and then this morning on the Marshall, we get this. I think that what we need to do is to recognise, and I'm sure we'll go into the reasons why these measures are appropriate, but we need to recognise that we do need to get the infection rate, uh, the R rate, below one. Um, we believe, on the basis of uh, the evidence that we have, that we will be able to do so, and that uh, from uh, the 2nd of December, we'll be able to move back to a, a fully regional approach, a tiered approach. Um, but obviously, we will be guided by the facts. And given, of course, the way in which uh, the virus has shown a particular malignancy in the course of the last uh, two weeks, uh, we do need to be vigilant. But our mm. assumption, on the basis of everything that so, we know, is that we will be able to exit these national restrictions on the 2nd of December. But it sounds like now there is a kind of consensus that if the R rate is not low enough and infections are still going up, that'll go on. Next question is what happens when we do exit this lockdown? Because Jeremy Farrer was suggesting that it will be like tier three, but more so restrictions across the entire country. That's pubs closed, restaurants closed, most shops closed, people not allowed to visit each other's houses and so forth, and that could go on for some time. Well, again, I'm a a great fan of uh, uh, Sir Jeremy and always listen with interest to the points that he makes. But I think it's important that we don't get entirely ahead of ourselves here. I think the the, the first thing to say is that the reason why we need to take these steps is because of the the danger of the (laughs) NHS being overwhelmed. None of us relish taking these steps. Um, if we can succeed through all of the measures we're taking and getting the R rate down, we can look at which restrictions can be lifted where. It's not going to be lifted in four weeks, is it? No. Nope. Not by the sounds of it. No. Uh, when's it going to be? Spring? Mm, I don't even know then. It might, in spring, they might go back to this kind of regional thing. But I think the only time, surely, is when it's kind of spread through the population and it's not spreading anymore. But I don't know if that's possible from what they're saying. Interesting point on the the vaccines front, that these phase three trials, uh, blind trials that they're, they're doing at the moment, they... So they rely on on a bit of infection in the community anyway, because they they give 
the candidates either the vaccine or placebo and then let them out into the into the world and say well you know take precaution they don't know whether they've had the the placebo or the vaccine and then they wait for x amount of of people in that pool to become infected and if everyone's locked down and you're trying to reduce that rate of infection then those trials aren't necessarily going to work. And I think it was this week or last that they've started, um, they've had agreement to do like human, what are they called, like human challenge trials or challenge something, where they trials. actually infect people. Challenge yeah, trials. Yeah. Challenge. challenge, yeah, human challenge trials, yeah. Well, they said, this, they said this in the summer, that because the infection rate was so low, the vaccine trials were going to stu- st- struggle. There wasn't enough of the yeah. virus in the in the out in the community for the trials to work. Yeah. That's right. I think Pfizer were planning on doing a, a look see in September, mm. and they've not done theirs yet. And that was the first the first one when I think it was fifty three infections. That's what they were looking for first, and it the evidence would suggest that they haven't found that much infection in their pool of, of uh, vaccine guinea pigs. Um, Do you know what yes. might have been a good tactic in the summer when infection and fatalities were on the floor and there's no winter pressures with the NHS to maybe relax some restrictions and build up mm. some community immunity rather than putting it off till winter when all respiratory viruses increase in prevalence this is why we have a winter crisis every year in the NHS. Mm. But no, we just uh, no. In fact, didn't the, didn't the mandatory mask get introduced in the middle of the summer? <coughs> yeah, none of it yeah, makes it was, any yeah. sense. No, it's fucked. <laughs> it's fucked, and they've not given themselves an out. We've no out. There is not not now, is there? No. Unless, like, what you said the other week, that the um, the out is when they stop doing 45 PCR cycles, whatever it's called, and reduce it down to 30. Well, and yeah, the ca- can control it. Can't. And then the cases go down. Yeah, it's either that or they stop mass testing and, mm-hmm. and just test people who are ill mm-hmm. and call that a case rather than calling some 20-year-old who's asymptomatic a case mm. and redefining it because he's not. Mm. And I, I don't know, where do we stand on being infectious? I always thought that you had to be symptomatic to be infectious. I don't think they know yet, do they, properly, whether you're infectious? That's, that's usually the case, like with everything else. <laughs> there was a great podcast this week. A guy called Mike Ye- uh, Yeadon, is it? Yeeland? Mike Yeeland is a doctor, and he was on the Delling Poll, Delling Pod podcast. And he's been in biology and immunology for 35 years. Uh, he worked alongside Patrick Valance for a while. Um, he had a job at Pfizer, this guy. Uh, he's, he took early retirement a while ago. And he basically on podcast came out and called Patrick Valance a liar. <gasps> Goodness me. He said, you know what I know. You know that, that what you're saying isn't true. You're a liar. Come and sue me. Right. 
Okay. But you won't because you won't what's win. He, what's he saying he's lying about? You know Everything. when they came, yeah, pretty much. You know when they came out in <laughs> September with that um, that scenario? Oh, right, yeah. And they said that um, due to ONS antibody surveillance figures, we believe that... Um, 7% of people have had the virus, therefore 93% of the population is still susceptible. Right. right. Anyone with any knowledge of immunology knows that's rubbish. Because your body making antibodies is like its last line of defense. Right. It doesn't account for mucosal immunity, the innate immune response. It doesn't account for T-cell immunity, cross-immunity with other... Co- um, coronaviruses so some guys some i don't know what country they were where were from but they they found as many people as they could um who survived SARS from 2003 mm-hmm. um and they are immune to covid19 mm-hmm. they have t-cell immunity that's lasted nearly two decades that's interesting isn't it yeah but patrick valence says no 93 percent of you are still susceptible and he says, no, that's a lie. He knows as much as I know. This is my Eid Yelan talking. He mm-hmm. knows. I have words alongside him. He knows what I know. He's, he's, he's not being honest with the public. That kind of links in with what I was asking last week. Like, What are the fringe benefits to <coughs> locking down a country? What what if it's not the virus, or if if it has, if it transpires that the virus isn't isn't as bad, and we're not all as susceptible as we're being told? Is there any other benefit to the government? Is there another agenda, essentially, to locking us down at this specific time, or focusing on the NHS? And I, I don't know. And you know, you hear discussions and things where politicians say no the nhs is certainly not for sale and we're not looking to go to a private a private situation like the states mm-hmm. uh, and then of course you know you've got the brexit situation where I've, I've completely lost track of where that that is now and what's what's going to be going on in in essentially two months time now <coughs> is there is there any benefit in keeping your populace you know under wraps, I don't know, under control, I guess, that isn't just about this virus floating around. I don't know the answer to that. (laughs) I think it's more, rather than it being some big global conspiracy, I think it's just opportunism and corruption. Well, that, yeah, that, I mean, that's the thing that blows out of the works. It's not just in Britain, is it? It's not like... No. <laughs> I'm, I'm focusing on, on that and really our decision or the Prime Minister's decisions. And they, they seem to be made from a, a following stance in every oh. case, apart from... A, he's not he's not a leader, he's a follower, from what I've seen. We played um, a clip from Malin Baker's, uh, previous guest Malin Baker's oh. YouTube channel, uh, a few weeks ago, now talking about this, and he talked about political groupthink, intergovernmental groupthink, and we've we've seen it with the first lockdown, and again this weekend, France and Germany announced lockdowns. The pressure then builds on our government 
to take decisive action. Then Sage come out with these doomsday scenarios. 4,000 or 6,000 people are going to die every a day at the peak, they're saying. More modelling. More modelling. Imperial is, uh, models are still being referenced. Neil Ferguson. And uh, he trashed uh, Mike Yeeland. He trashed Ferguson on it as well and, and what they've been yeah. doing. It's uh, an interest. I was going to clip it and I will listen to it and started taking notes. I could have took 50 clips from it because it, it, it was just devastating. It just devastated the whole Sage thing. It needs to be disbanded, he was saying, because it's not fit for purpose. And uh, I'm starting to agree with it and sort of looking forward to the public inquiry and seeing Patrick Valance mm. there in the dock and then, you know, hopefully getting him stripped of his knighthood. <laughs> <laughs> Might be wishful thinking. But, you know, I just, I just worry we're, we're so focused on this that we were talking last night about the collateral damage and it's mm. just going to be fucking horrific and people don't realise but it's like fifty percent of the population are thirsty. They're thirsty for it. Lock me down. Tread on me, daddy. Stamp on me. Tell me what to fucking do. I just, don't, I just don't. I do not get it. I don't get it. Is it not? Do you not think some? A lot of people are still scared, aren't they? You would think. <sighs> yeah, yeah and, definitely. And I don't. This is probably controversial, but I'll say it. But do you not think some people quite like being furloughed? away from the jobs that they don't like and getting 80% of the salary. Definitely. Some people, probably like a minority, I would have thought. But Do you know what? The, the lockdowns are a, a, a luxury of the middle classes. It's the lower and working class people who are going to pay the price for this. Well, that's the thing. is, like when this furlough, it's like it's just been extended for another month, hasn't it? I think. So it's supposed to end, was it not, on the 31st yesterday? Yeah. And that's been extending for another 30 days or whatever. But yeah, basically it's going to be, it's all these chains that are closing. It's like, um, I think it was like Pizza Hut said they're closing X amount of stores or, you know, all these places that hire people on a minimum wage right. or it's a living wage or whatever. Those are the kinds of jobs that are going, aren't they? Essentially. Mm. Yeah, I mean it's it's generally, and you know, I'm generalising, but if you look mm-hmm. take a look at middle class families, they're more likely to be able to work from home, so they don't <coughs> yeah. lose twenty percent of the pay. They get the full pay through the through the lockdown. Yeah. They, they save on travelling expenses, going to the office. So a lot of people are actually better off. I'm during, better off. We're better off during the lockdown. I am better off during the lockdown. I'd say financially, but yeah. Um, if school closes, I will not be better off mentally. That's the thing. No. I have to start working condensed hours again. Yeah. Like three days a week doing full full week in three days. But the analogy of it hitting poorer people harder doesn't mm. just apply to our country. This is a global issue. Well, yeah, like, yeah, like properly poor people, you know. People who are at risk of starvation. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. Um, the the global economy shutting down the you know uh, our system for all its faults our capitalist system has lifted <coughs> hundreds and hundreds of millions of people out of poverty over the last couple of decades three decades and a lot of that is going to get reversed mm. because of these measures and uh, things like child vaccination rates 
drop like a stone. Yeah, you know, we're, well, we're doing it anymore. No, in 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 like in Africa and in other places, and we we seem to be a lot of us are ignorant or blasé about these consequences, mm. and you know. The benefits of the lockdown have yet to be proven to me. Any, any significant benefit of locking down. So, I don't know. No, um, there, there must be something. Someone somewhere must be getting something from this, which alludes to my previous point. I'm not getting anything from it. I mean, I, I'm in Matt's position now. You know, I quite like working from home, and it's, it's all right. But... <clears throat> I'm not the decision maker here. And the decision makers who are deciding everyone locks down or everyone's in tier three, four, seven, whatever, they must be seeing a benefit themselves. Someone somewhere must be getting something from this. Well, look at the way the government hands out the contracts to Serco and Dido Harding and all the mates. Mm. Yeah. You know, that's just one. I thought I'd been cancelled then when the camera cut out. <laughs> That's just one avenue of the corruption end of it. You know. It's just so much cash, so much money being pumped into that test and trace thing, and it's awful, isn't it? And then you look at the pharmaceutical yeah. end of it. Mm. You know. Guaranteed bit. cash. It's something that's not guaranteed to work. Do you know? Do you remember what happened with H1N1? When uh, all, 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 all our countries in Europe were lumbered with millions and billions of pounds worth of vaccine that no one wanted because it had all, right. it had just gone away and we were lumbered with it. Right. Having to renegotiate <laughs> contracts with Glaxo and all the rest of it. Say, so, yeah, we ordered this stuff. It turns out we don't need it anymore. Right. You know, it's but life, it? it's great that when you get paid up front, isn't it? And just, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, Time's not time's knocking on, and uh, we don't want to finish on something sad. No, we don't. Okay. Do you know um, any more blend, blender recipes? <laughs> you know how how I'm a pillar of the podcasting community. No, it's pronounced pillock. <laughs> I've got my uh, my ear to the pulse, my finger on the ground. No, finger on the pulse, ear to the ground. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think you had it the right way around. <laughs> Case in point. I uh, I I noticed a call to arms from uh, a fellow podcaster, um, totally w- weird and twisted. Um, they wanted to do something special for Halloween, mm-hmm. and uh, they encouraged. What have you done? <laughs> they they encouraged uh, fellow podcasters to record a short <laughs> Halloween message for their listeners. And um, so, obviously, I, I stood to attention, did it, and uh, sent it. And they played it on the podcast that came out yesterday, so I took a clip. They got inundated. There's m- tons and tons of people, who uh, podcasters, who sent uh, Halloween messages. So, and, you know, I knew they would get low, so I kept it pretty low-key. And uh, <laughs> I think you'll, you'll enjoy the first one, actually, which isn't ours, but you'll, you'll spot ours, I'm sure. Anyway. Oh, if I can find it. Guys, later. Uh, Hey, twats, it's Frankie. And it's Jake. And we are Fear the Talking Queers. And we just wanted to say, happy (laughs) Halloween. 
bitch. And for those who speak Spanish, Feliz Halloween, perra. <laughs> Sweet screams, bitch. Really? Happy Halloween from Sledgehammer Horror. Hi, this is Chewy. And this is Monica, and we're from Explore in the Midst Behind the Legends. <laughs> your podcast for all your horror media needs, and we want to wish you a very spooky Halloween season. Hey, all you twats listening to Totally Weird and Twisted, we just wanted to say Happy Halloween from the Radio Nasties podcast. So, Happy Halloween! Oh! Oh! Oh, wow! It's Halloween again! Alright! So, Happy Halloween from the Amish Inquisition! To all the twats out there. Who are? That's really good, eh? Ah, uh, nice. I, uh, yeah, dropped a bit of Pacino in for him. Do you know I fucked up as well? I did, uh, I played, I've got like some Sicilian mafia, mafia music, and then I did his, um, Scent of a yeah. Woman, Southern you Accent. Did. You did. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. It's Halloween again. All right. Uh, yeah. So, happy Halloween from the Amish Inquisition to all the twats out there. Oh, Ooh, shit. That's how hot character is that? Yeah, it's quite a juxtaposition. <laughs> or is it the, um, is it the pedophile that lives next door to Peter Griffin? Oh yeah! Don't forget to stretch those creamy hamstrings. Oh ha! I actually sent them two. I gave them a choice. I sent them this one as well. Nobody expects the Amish Inquisition. Happy Halloween, swats! Nice. That's it. They didn't like. They didn't use that one. So. Yeah, tr- tr- check out the twat cast. Totally weird and twisted. They're funny. They're good. Bitch. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, that was an interesting one. Guys, later. Hey, twats. It's Frankie and it's Jake, and we are Fear the Talking Queers. <laughs> Subscribe. <laughs> Bitch. Oh, so, have we anything to add? Or should we wrap yeah. up for tonight? No, I just want I just want I just want Dave Matheson to do us another presentation. Yeah, hopefully yeah. We'll, hopefully Dave will come back for down the line and uh Yeah, like every week or something. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do some more star myths. I'll read his book in the meantime, Myth and Trauma. That's my next yeah. book. Mm-hmm. I'm just finishing one on the Gnostics and then uh I'm gonna be starting I'm gonna start devouring myth and trauma. So that's something to, for me to look forward to when we're locked down. So uh yeah, I guess uh, uh, we'll sign off for this week. Uh, next week, Marek Zimslowski. Next I week, he has um, uh, author, entrepreneur who ended up on Interpol's most wanted list. Ooh. So that should be interesting. Right, you good. See you later. Okay. Yeah. Catch you next week. <laughs> jumbo jumbo. I got Harry. Cunt. Should I'm literally a. <laughs> Come here, Goose, you big... Communist.
I imagine the carrot was my penis. I don't like them putting chemicals in the water that turn the friggin' frogs gay. I'm a blind man. Uh, uh, uh because I, I believe I, I have an issue in this respect, and it really bothers me. Doctor, but the chair. <laughs> <laughs>